Thank you very much for that. That's a, a great new song, new to me anyway. Uh, very, very fitting for the passage that we're going to spend some time in uh, together this morning. Uh, a few things just for the record first. Extra Bibles is not really a problem. This is Adam's preaching Bible, so I'm just going to move that out of the way. Uh, number two for the record, Adam, I know when you listen to this later, uh, you're going to appreciate this. Your head and my head are not the same size. <laughs> this, this is drastically misshapen. <coughs> uh, and third thing, I'm about 80% through a head cold, so forgive me for the remaining 20% <coughs> like that. Uh, we are going to spend some time this morning in, uh, in the book of Exodus. One of the things that I have found just remarkably true about Bible study, and Adam has said this, and other teachers have said this, you read this all kinds of places, is the more time you spend in a book, the more amazing it becomes to you and the more that you love it. Uh, Exodus is that book for me, at least the mo- most lately. Uh, we've been studying it, Grace and I, together with the senior high youth uh, in the church since September, so we've been four months in that book, uh, just working our way through it with them in a, in a Bible study biweekly. Uh, The great thing about this is I get to bring you into our study, and I get to bring uh, them and their study into uh, Sunday morning, and we get to do it all together. So pretty excited about that, just to bring you into what we've been doing uh, with them, especially for parents. You can now uh, tell them that you know what they learned, so no excuses, right? Uh, The other thing we're going to do today is, I know this is a break from Romans. We're going to return to it next week after months uh, of, of fantastic study of the theology that's there. Uh, and this is a really good break, and I think it's important. It's a, it's a, a breath of something new and something different, and we're going to return to it next week, I think, with a, a summary and a Q&A with Adam. Uh, but Romans, at least for me, never really goes away. We're going to spend uh, some of our time connecting the theology that we see in Exodus and the things that God says with the theology and truths that we've learned uh, from our study of Romans. So we're even going to uh, jump into that today. So a quick little background uh, when I say the word quick, that's never true, so just don't latch on to that too, don't hold that too tightly. Uh, we're going to talk about Exodus, like I said. So what is Exodus? What's it all about? Fundamentally, uh, it recounts the journey of Israel from an enslaved people, right? Let's restart, in Egypt. Uh, and when the Lord gives them his covenant, he says, you are my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. That's the, the transformation we see in one book of the Bible, one journey out of Egypt. It picks up where uh, Genesis left off, right? So in Genesis, the family of Jacob goes to Egypt during the famine to survive, basically, and they're uh, exalted and lifted up because Joseph, son of uh, Jacob, basically saved the nation. Uh, There's a a change in leadership in Egypt. 400 years later now, Israel, so the the nation of Jacob, is now enslaved. The Egyptians uh, were basically afraid of them and said, if we don't enslave them, they're going to ally with our enemies and, and take us over. They enslave them uh, in Egypt. So the book is all about how they get out of that situation, how the Lord redeems them, their exodus from Egypt, and then uh, details the, the covenant that God makes with that nation at Mount Sinai. So really what this book is, it, it's really a covenant. That's the most fundamental thing I want you to grasp, is that most of Exodus is God making a covenant with his people. He says, these are the things that you're going to agree to if you're going to be my people and I'm going to be your God. And the 12 chapters or so it takes us to get out of Egypt honestly is just context. Like, that's not the exciting part of the book. Moses says, okay, we need to write this down. We need to record these plagues. We need to record this journey. We need to record your constant disobedience. So when we get to the covenant, you know what's going on. You know how we got here. You know what the Lord has done. You know that he is the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. 
There's a few other things we see that change in the book of Exodus. Uh, All through Genesis, the Lord establishes his personal relationship with people, with one person. So he has a relationship, a covenant with Adam. And then we see he has a relationship and a covenant with Noah, and then with Abraham, and then with Isaac, and then with Jacob. It's these personal relationships, these personal covenants with these people. What changes in Exodus is the Lord says, okay, I'm not just pursuing a a single relationship with a man and his family. I'm pursuing a relationship with Israel, the nation, through Moses. Big change in how the Lord relates to his people. Uh, What we're also going to see in Exodus is it's the people are really waiting for this fulfillment of these previous covenants. So God, like I said, made a covenant with Abraham, and he promised him that his people, his nation, his family— Uh, would be exactly that, a great nation, and that his name would be made great, and that those people, through them, uh, they would be a blessing to all of the nations, all of the world. Now, again, we see a change. We see it's not just about a relationship with a person, an individual. It's about a relationship between God and a nation, and God is working to fulfill the covenants he's previously made. So he made this covenant with Abraham. Now he's going to work to fulfill it, and we're going to see that in Exodus. So if you're a Hebrew reader, you're going through Genesis, and you've gone through Exodus, and and what you're waiting for, what you're remembering, is the Lord made a covenant, and he's going to fulfill it. So every page, every chapter, every account, you're waiting for that that covenant to be fulfilled. Waiting, waiting, waiting. You get it to Abraham, and then you read the family of Isaac, and you say, is Isaac going to be the fulfillment of the covenant? And he's not. And then you get to Jacob. Is Jacob going to be the fulfillment of the covenant? No, he's not. Is Joseph? No, he's not. Now we get to Exodus, and Moses, and your hope is that the covenant will be now fulfilled. The second thing you're waiting for as a Hebrew reader is the return to the perfect state of Eden back in Genesis, where the Lord was with his people. That was broken with sin, that was broken at Eden, that was broken by Adam and Eve. And the hope of of the Hebrews is that we would get back to that. We want to return to a place or a way where the presence of the Lord can be with his people. Exodus uh, tackles both of these challenges, these, these expectations of a Hebrew reader, covenant fulfillment and a return to Eden. So we get into Exodus, and problem number one here is that God endeavors to form a relationship with his people, not just one man, but they just don't know who he is, right? The Lord was the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of those covenants, but it's been 400 years since then. They're enslaved. There's no connection to this God that they have. They just don't know who he is. They only know him as the God of these covenants that they are awaiting. Central to the book of Exodus, then, is that God is seeking to be known by his people. Throughout the book, uh, in, I think, 15 places I counted, the Lord says variations of, uh, you shall know that I am the Lord your God. 15 times. And not just to the people of Israel. He says it about Moses. He says, Moses, I'm doing this so you will know that I am the Lord. He says it uh, about Israel a bunch of times as well, of course. I am doing this so you, the nation of Israel, will know that I am the Lord. He says about Pharaoh. I'm doing this, Pharaoh, all these plagues on your nation, so you will know that I am the Lord. He says it even about the nation of Egypt, not just Pharaoh. I'm doing this so the nation of Egypt will know that I am the Lord. And by extension, all nations. He's doing these things so that all nations will know that he is the Lord, their God. 
So that's the big picture context of the book of Exodus. Uh, From there, then, let's go into our passage for this morning in Exodus chapter uh, 6. If you could please stand with me while we read from uh, Exodus chapter 6, starting in verse 2. A bit of a side note, this is actually the, the memory work uh, the memory work we've assigned to the senior high for this fall. So parents, if this is the first you're hearing of it, it shouldn't be. So Exodus chapter 6, uh, 2 through 8. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appear to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groanings of the people of Israel whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Uh, Lord, we pray that as we spend the remainder of our time in study of this just phenomenal passage in Exodus, words that you spoke to Moses, uh, that we would just see uh, how incredible you are and how incredible your works are and how faithful you are in fulfilling uh, your covenants, not just to them, but also to us. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So we spent some time doing big picture context. What's Exodus all about? How did we get here? Who's this Moses guy, right? Those sorts of things. Uh, We need to do some immediate context as well. Like, when does this happen? Exodus chapter 6, like, what got us here in the preceding five chapters? Uh, So prior to this, Moses, we know his story, right? We've all seen the litany of Moses movies, uh, right? He runs away from Egypt because he kills an Egyptian. He is called by the Lord in the burning bush to return to Egypt. Aaron meets him on the way. Uh, They come back in, and then they go and meet with Pharaoh, and they say, Pharaoh, you you need to let the people go. And Moses knows, because the Lord told him so many times, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. He's not going to let you go. Go ask him, but it's not going to happen. So Moses goes to Pharaoh with Aaron, and they say, okay, let the people go. And Pharaoh rejects God. Not only does he say say no, he says, I'm not going to let the people go, because I don't know the God of the Hebrews. That is because he doesn't want to. He says, you know, like, what authority do you have? Your God is asking, who's he? I do not know the Lord. As a direct result of that, he increases their workload. He, he does the, uh, the, the routine where he says, you know, you, you have too much time in your hands, basically. If you can start this insurrection, this rebellion, you need more work. So he doesn't give them any more straw for their bricks. So the people are scattered throughout the nation to gather this building material to continue their work. On the way out from Pharaoh, so this is a pretty interesting narrative, it all happens really, really close together. Pharaoh, uh, Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh, they talk to him, he says, forget it, I don't know who the Lord is, your work is now doubled, or worse anyway. 
Moses and, and Aaron leave. The, the people of, of Israel, their leaders, are waiting outside for them. They've heard how the meeting has gone, and they say, what have you done? Like, you've made this so much worse. You have made us, I think they use the word stink in the eyes of the, of the people of Egypt. You've put swords in their hands. You haven't fixed this. You've made this worse. And in this narrative, it's just a, it's, it's a comical way to phrase it, I think, for, for Moses, because it says Moses turns to the Lord and basically repeats all that back. So usually we get in the narrative, you know, Moses heard from the people, they complained, and then Moses went into his tent or whatever, and then he spoke to the Lord. In this narrative, we get Moses exited from Pharaoh, the people approach him and say, what have you done? You've made this so much worse. And it says, Moses turns to the Lord and says, what have you done? You've made this so much worse. It's, it's immediate, it's instant. He's just not really thinking through. He knows this is going to happen. He knows Pharaoh is going to say no. He turns, he says, Lord, like, what is going on? And the Lord says, Moses, you just don't understand. You don't see what I'm trying to do here. And the Lord has told him this already. If you go back to the, the burning bush experience where the Lord is calling Moses. But the Lord explains his purposes and about every four words Moses cuts in and says, but like, why me? And the Lord says, I'm going to free you from Egypt, but why me? I'm going to free you from Egypt, but send somebody else. I'm going to free you from Egypt, but maybe Aaron. And it's back and forth and constant. And Moses misses what the Lord is saying that his purpose is. So the Lord this time says, Moses, you do not understand. Let me explain to you what I am going to accomplish and why. So this right here, the passage we read, chapter 6, 2 to 8, is the most clear statement directly from the Lord, uninterrupted, that says this is what I'm going to do and this is why. I'm going to free you from Egypt. Because I made covenants to your forefathers, because I've heard your groaning, and I'm doing it in a way so that you will know, in verse uh, 7 there, that I am the Lord your God. That's the purpose. It's the reason why he does this, and the reason for how he does this. We're going to spend uh, the rest of our time just looking at this passage and the things we can see in it and the things we can learn from it. There's three big things I want us to see. Uh, and, and they're just fantastic literary, uh, literary devices we can use to help us in our study of Scripture. The first one is that there's repetition in this passage. Anytime something gets repeated, it, it's done that way on purpose. It's so that you catch the repetition and say, oh, that's probably important because it says it over and over and over again. And this is a great example of that. In these three verses alone, the Lord says, I am the Lord, three times catch that. Notice it. It's important. It's repeated. I am the Lord. I am the Lord. I am the Lord. Not only does he say it three times, he says it at the beginning and the middle and the end. And this forms something that's really incredible that's called a, I think it's on the screen now, yep. It's called a chiastic pattern. So you don't know what that is. I'm going to explain it. It's okay. Uh, a chiastic pattern is a, a device, especially in Hebrew literature, that is designed to bring our attention to something. The way it does that is it, it, you write a series of statements. So like an A statement, a B statement, a C statement, this one has a D statement, A, B, C, D. So you say those, and then you say them again, but backwards. So you say A, B, C, D, and then D, C, B, A. So if you look at our passage, you can see, I've just done it in colors, uh, you can see that pattern. And I think, Glenn, if you go to the next one, it's even more, I, I summarized it a little bit. That's our pattern. So we've got A, B, C, D, DBCA, and then there's something extra in the middle. It's not a part of the pattern. 
Not only does he say, I am the Lord, three times, he says it right in the center, in the middle of this incredible chiastic pattern, where at the top he says, I am the Lord, at the bottom, I am the Lord. Second, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he repeats it at the bottom, B, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I promise them the land of Canaan. I promise them the land of Canaan. I know you're in slavery. I know you're in slavery. In the middle of that, I am the Lord. The purpose of the Lord in saving Israel from Egypt the way he does, in redeeming them from slavery, is that they would know that he is the Lord. Not only is this a really incredible chiastic pattern, uh, one other thing you see in Hebrew literature is, is sometimes when you make a repetition of the statement, the second time you, you say it in a bigger and better way, and that's even more emphasis. So uh, the next one shows that as well. Not only is this a chiastic pattern, but every repeated statement, if you go to the next one, Glenn, every repeated statement is bigger and better than the original ones. So I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Yes, he is. That's absolutely true. And at the bottom he says, not only am I their God, the promises I made to them I'm fulfilling for you. Not only uh, do I, did I promise them the land, I'm going to bring you into it and give it to you. Not only do I know you're in slavery in Egypt, I know you're there and I'm going to redeem you. We see phenomenal repetition, this growing of things that are bigger and better, and then in the chiastic pattern, the, the statement that I am the Lord is right front and center, and that's what we're meant to see. So if you're a Hebrew reader and you're seeing this, you recognize these literary devices, literary devices, and you get out of it, and, and, and you think, okay, what did I learn? What do I, what do I understand from this? You see, okay, I, he, the Lord is saying to Moses, to us, that he is the Lord. He is the God of our forefathers. He's the God of the covenants and the promise of Canaan. He has promised to free us and redeem us from slavery. He's going to take us as his people. And by doing these things, we will know that he is the Lord. That's what a Hebrew reader is meant to see and understand from this, this uh, speech from the, the Lord to Moses. One of the things I think we miss in the, in the whole account here is that the Lord doesn't free Israel from Egypt through plagues and miraculous works because he has to. It's not like that's the only option. It's because he's accomplishing something. He's choosing to act in a certain way because it accomplishes his purposes. He chooses to free them through plagues, through miracles, through these incredible works, because it shows Moses, Israel, Egypt, all the nations, Pharaoh, that he is the Lord. And that's the most clear way for him to show that. It is so they will know that he is their God. Uh, and a parallel example, totally different, right? The Lord frees Israel later from exile in a different way. He just changes the king of Babylon. The king of Babylon says, you Israelites are kind of like, you're okay, let's let you go back to your land could have happened here. It didn't. The opposite happened. The Lord changed the king, new Pharaoh, who said, we're going to enslave these people. Totally different way of working to accomplish the same thing, but for a different purpose. So that's the first thing. He's doing this so the people will know that he's the Lord. The second thing I, I want us to notice in this passage is who is the active worker in redeeming Israel in the exodus of Israel from Egypt. Uh, just listen to a few of these I, I pulled out of this passage. These are things that the Lord says. He says, I am the Lord. I will bring you out. I will deliver you from slavery. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and great acts of judgment. 
I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. You will know that I am the Lord your God. I will bring you into the land. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. Israel does nothing to affect their own exodus. And that's the point. The Lord says, I am doing this. All of it. Every step. So you will know that I am the Lord. We know from our study in Romans that the Lord is not only the active worker in the exodus, the salvation of Israel from Egypt, but he's the active worker in our salvation as well. The Lord said in the same way, Israel, you are not saving yourselves. You are not affecting this exodus. I am. And he's done the same thing for us through Christ. He says, humanity, you have sinned so much, so many times, so terribly, and you have no hope of affecting any salvation on your own. You are dead. The odds of you saving yourselves is the same odds as a dead man standing up and walking. It cannot happen. The Lord is the worker in our salvation. And just from our study of Romans, uh, we've seen, I'm going to just go through a few of the, the theological concepts we've, we've addressed, the Lord alone is wrathful against our sin and our rebellion. It is the Lord alone who propitiates his wrath, satisfies it, by pouring it out on Christ. And he redeems us from our slavery to sin. The Lord alone sanctifies us and changes our nature by making our dead hearts, our stone hearts, alive. The Lord alone glorifies us and raises us bodily into eternal glory with Christ. And the Lord alone elects us unto salvation. In the same way that the Lord is the worker in the salvation of Israel, he is the worker in our salvation from sin. So what do we do with this now? This, this thought that the exodus of Egypt and the salvation from us is a work of God alone. We, we just must rejoice, I, I think, in the faithfulness of God. Without the Lord being the, the active worker, the participant in our salvation, if our covenant, our agreement, our salvation with the Lord was condition on, conditional on our obedience or anything else, we don't have a hope. We would fail. And we see that over and over and over again with the people of Israel. Paul later writes, in a place I can't remember, uh, that the accounts in the wilderness and Exodus and the people of Israel are written down for our instructions. We would know and learn from what it is that they did. So we look back at this, and we can't just say, Israel, like, what were you doing? We need to look back at them and say, if we were in the same position, we would do the same thing. The Lord sets up a conditional covenant with them. He says, here is my law, obey it, and I will bless you, and I will be with you. And they failed the entire duration of that covenant over and over. One phenomenal example of that failure, and again, if we were in the same place, we would do the same thing, is the account of the golden calf, if we stick within Exodus here. The people of Israel, this, I'm not going to read it, we're just going to th- go through the narrative. Uh, the people of Israel f- get out of Egypt, they cross the Red Sea, and, and when they cross the Red Sea, we get this really cool footnote that says, when they got over the Red Sea and they saw the army of Pharaoh drowning and dead and not pursuing them anymore, they knew, basically, that the Lord was God, and they o- would obey him, and they trusted him, and they feared him. We get this really cool conclusion that they actually do know that he is the Lord. Then they journey to Sinai. They get to the mountain, uh, Moses meets with the Lord a a few times, and the Lord says, okay, bring the people to the mountain. I'm going to speak the law to them. 
So the people approach the mountain. Moses goes down and says, the Lord is going to speak the law. And the Lord speaks from the mountain, thunder, lightning, all, trumpets. There's all kinds of stuff going on up there. Uh, all kinds of incredible noises. The Lord is there, and he speaks the Ten Commandments to the people. They hear him speak at the bottom of the mountain with Moses. And the people go to Moses. They say, stop this from happening. If he speaks anymore, we're just all going to die. We can't take the presence of the Lord. It's going to kill us. Moses says, okay, go from the mountain, go back to the tent. I will go up and receive the law on your behalf. So he gets the law, a portion of it anyway. He actually only gets, I think, the Ten Commandments plus 50, so 60 laws. And they're all just versions of the Ten Commandments. There's only only 10 rules. Moses comes back down. He says, okay, people of Israel, this is the law. Here's the 60 laws, Ten Commandments plus 50. Can we confirm these? Will we keep these? And they say, yes, we will. And they send representatives from the nation. I think it's 70 elders, Moses and Aaron and his two sons go up Mount Sinai, and they have a meal with the Lord, and they confirm the covenant. And they go back down, and then Moses goes back up the mountain to receive the rest of the law. So the people are down there. They got ten rules. Ten. Moses goes up for 40 days to receive the law. Lightning, thunder, trumpets, like a cloud of fire on the mountain. They can see it. And within those 40 days, they make the golden calf. Ten rules. That's all they had. Forty days. And they blow it so incredibly. They give uh, gold to Aaron. Aaron melts it down, and he makes this golden calf, and he puts it up and says, look, this is the God that freed you from Egypt. And they can see the fire on the mountain. He's there. That would be us. And that's what we need to see. Uh, The covenant for them was conditional on their obedience. They did not obey, uh, and neither would we without the assurance of salvation being dependent on the Lord alone, it is better for us to just die in this wilderness like it would have been better for Israel. This is the second thing. The Lord is the active worker, not only in the exodus from Egypt, but also in our salvation. The third thing that I want us to see is the way in which the Lord saves Israel. So there's five things he promises in this passage. He says, um, well, let's just read it. In the second half, from chapter 6, verse, uh, verse 6 down. It says, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. That's number one. I will deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. And with great acts of judgment, there's two more. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. There's another one. Uh, And you will know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Verse 8, I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and I will give it to you for a possession. There's the fifth one. So he promises them in this five things. He says, I'm going to deliver you from slavery. I'm going to redeem you. I am going to do it in judgment. I'm going to set up a covenantal relationship with you. You will be my people. I will be your God. And I'm going to give you possession of the land. So I want to spend a few minutes here and just look at these things one at a time and see when does this happen. Because he makes five promises. And the Lord fulfills all five of these for Israel within four books of the Bible. So when do they happen? First one, 
uh, deliverance from slavery. We know that happens for certain when the Israelites cross the Red Sea and the army of Pharaoh drowns in the ocean. And at the end of Exodus 14, uh, we get this footnote from Moses. It says, Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. That's deliverance. They are free from slavery. The second one, he says, is that he will redeem them. This is probably the the most difficult concept in this exchange, is is how does redemption happen exactly here? Uh, And Redemption is the act of freeing someone by basically paying their debt or or with some form of payment, then then they're free. Uh, the typical concept we go to is, is the one where somebody is enslaved and they're, they're a slave that has a dollar value on their head and you, you pay that dollar value and, and you redeem them by paying the cost. In uh, ancient Near Eastern context, slavery was often a thing you would sell yourself into to free yourself from debt. So you'd be in, in, uh, in significant debt and you'd say, okay, I'll, I'll be your servant because I owe you money for this duration of time to pay this debt. So there's, there's a fixed financial value to your indebtedness, to your slavery. Somebody could redeem you by paying that value. Israel didn't sell themselves into slavery. They were oppressed into slavery, forced into manual labor. There was no dollar value that the Lord needed to repay. He didn't fill the coffers of Egypt. Instead, the Lord repaid Egypt for their evil in retribution. He said, you did evil, you are repaid evil. And the the work of the Lord through the plagues is the repayment to Egypt. <clears throat> uh, and, and ultimately, the, the last plague of the, the death of the firstborn is the, the ultimate retribution, the ultimate payment of judgment to Egypt. So redemption happens in the plagues. The third one is uh, a judgment. He promises judgment. Again, we've been talking about this for the last 30 seconds or so. The judgment happens through the plagues, right? We see 10 of these miraculous acts of the Lord against uh, the people and the nation of Israel. And in Exodus 12:11, in the middle of explaining the last plague, uh, the Lord says, I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, And even on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments because I am the Lord. The judgment comes on the people, on their gods, on their nation, on their king. The fourth one is the promise of covenantal relationship. He says, I will be your God, you will be my people. Most scholars that I read uh, on this Exodus chapter 6 passage say that's really, really clearly marriage-type covenant language. I will be your husband, you will be my wife. Same language, same concept. The Lord is saying we are going to set up a personal covenant, an exclusive covenant where I will be your God. You can't have any others. You're going to be my people and I will not have any others. We have this exclusive covenantal relationship. And that covenant is, is affirmed or finalized. The marriage happens on Mount Sinai. And I spoke about it a few minutes ago. When the 70 elders of Israel and Moses and Aaron and his two sons go up on the mountain, they're in the presence of the Lord, and they have a feast. That's confirming the covenant. That's a marriage feast. That's what's happening. He unites 
through confirmation of the covenant, the people of Israel with God in marriage. The last promise is that they will have possession of the land. And if you go several books ahead, end of the Torah, you go to the next one, Joshua, that whole account, that whole book is the story of how the people conquer the land. And Joshua, at the end of his life, in chapter 24 and 25, gives this big speech, and he says, the Lord has given you this land. He fought for you. He went ahead of you. He drove out the people, and he's placed us here. We now have the land that is fulfilled. That's also where that uh, really great passage about me and my household, we will serve the Lord. What will you do comes from. He says, we have been given the land. So within one generation, so one generation dies in the wilderness, but the next one gets the land. So within that you know, the people who, who see the plagues, their kids get the land. It's one generation. The Lord fulfills all five of these things. Really phenomenal uh, thing about this is the Lord makes these five promises, and this is, uh, as far as I can find, the first promise, prophecy, and, and fulfillment event for the entire nation of Israel. This is the first time the Lord promises the nation something and gives it to them. He says, I'm going to free you, and do all these things, give you the land, and they get that fulfillment, and it's the first time. So it's a big deal. Because it's such a, an important event, and because it's the first time, the Lord constantly refers back to it when he's speaking to Israel later for hundreds of years. Uh, if you read through uh, prophets, Deuteronomy is loaded with it. You read through even some of the writings that's in uh, Psalms for sure, you will come across the phrase, I am the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt and delivered you from the house of slavery over and over and over again. And it's not just because it's a nice phrase, it's a true thing. It's because it's really incredible. The Lord made these five promises to a nation. He's never done that before. He fulfilled them in a generation. He redeemed them. He bought them from slavery. He judged the nation they were in. He set up a relationship with them. He gave them the land. Like, that's what all that's saying. I promised all these things and I did them. Why do you not have faith in me? The remarkable thing about this way in which the Lord saves Israel is that it is the same pattern or parallel to or typological of, if you like that word, the way the Lord saves us. Uh, typology, which is what's happening here, is when the Lord, or in the Bible anyway, we set up a pattern of something. So in, in this case, it's a pattern of salvation. Deliverance from slavery, redemption, judgment, covenant relationship, possession of the land. That's a pattern that the Lord does again later in a bigger and better way for all of his people eternally. So we've got this pattern of things that he did for a nation, for a people within one generation. He does this again bigger and better for all of his people in salvation. So we're going to look at the same five. The first one. Deliverance from slavery. Israel was delivered from slavery to a nation. We are delivered from our slavery to sin, from our depravity. We are delivered from that in the same way. Second uh, is, is redemption. There is a price paid to Egypt in the form of retribution for their slavery. There is a price paid in the form of death by Christ on the cross for our redemption. Uh, and you can find that. I, I was going to go there, but, but we don't have enough time. Uh, honestly, flip to any page in Romans, and you can find Paul talking about those two things. You are delivered, you are redeemed through Christ. Romans 3 is a good start. Next one, judgment. The Lord says, 
I will redeem you, Israel, from, the, from Egypt through judgment. He does. Ten plagues, wipes them out, judges their gods, judges their king, kills all their firstborn, judges everything in that nation, and they're freed. And there is judgment promised as a part of our redemption and the, the redemption of the earth, right? Christ is returning, and when he does, judgment comes on this earth, and he will redeem it. Uh, the fourth one is the promise of a covenantal relationship. Again, with Israel, we see it on Mount Sinai. Send your elders, send Moses, send Aaron, send the two sons of the priests. We will confirm this covenant, set up this marriage relationship together. And this is one that we have still a promise of, right? Judgment hasn't happened yet. There's a promise there. Covenantal relationship for us hasn't been confirmed yet. We haven't had, in the same way Israel has, a marriage feast with the Lord. But we know it's coming. It's a phenomenal promise from uh, Isaiah 25 and in Revelation. Isaiah sees in chapter 25 this, this vision of a marriage supper between uh, the Lord and all people, not just Israel, all people. And then in Revelation 19, we see uh, the marriage supper of the Lamb in the form of a prophecy. John sees this. Let's go there. Revelation uh, 19, verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. And you read on, and, and a feast occurs between Christ, the Lamb, and his bride, us, right, the church, those who he, whom he has saved. Our confirmation of our covenant with the Lord, our marriage feast with him is yet to come. It's a promise. Last one is possession of the land. Israel received that promise about uh, Canaan, right? The land in which your forefathers sojourned, I will give to you to live in. And they do. They see in the book of Joshua. We have the promise of an eternal inheritance, an eternal land, a renewed earth, a renewed heavens, right? Heavens comes down on the earth, and it's all new, and we're put in it, and we have this incredible place to serve the Lord. That land is coming for us. That's another promise we can count on. So here's what I want us to see. There are, in Exodus chapter 6, 2 through 8, five specific promises of the Lord given to Israel, five prophecies of action that he will do for them. And he does them all in one generation. And we have that in scripture. It's there. It happened. It's real. We have the same five promises given to us. And we haven't seen them all yet. Right? We have seen deliverance from slavery. Absolutely. Are we freed from depravity? Yes, through Christ. Are we redeemed? Yes, Christ died. He paid that price. Those two promises made and fulfilled, but the remainder, a promise of coming judgment, a promise of covenantal relationship and marriage to the Lord, a promise of a good land, we haven't seen yet. And we don't just need to have faith in these things because that's a part of the package, like I'm a Christian so I have to believe this now. It's because we know that it's going to happen. He's done it already. The Lord did these five things for Israel in an incredible, miraculous way. 
and he has done two of them for us already, and the other three he's going to. We don't just need to have blind faith in the Lord because that's what we're supposed to do. We can have faith in the Lord because he's done the things he has promised. And that's why he reminds Israel over and over again, I am the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of slavery. It's not so that he can just say it because it sounds cool and it's impressive. It's because he says, have faith in me because I've done this. I promised this. I delivered. I'm pretty convinced if, uh, if the Lord spoke to us through prophets today, he'd say something pretty darn similar. I am the Lord who brought you out of sin, redeemed you from death. For the same reason, I've done this stuff. You should and you need to have faith in me because you know I fulfill my promises and I've demonstrated that to you. The Lord doesn't ask us to trust him blindly. He provides all kinds of phenomenal reason and evidence to have faith in him because he's done the things he has promised again and again. We need to take the same reassurance and reminder uh, from the Lord when he reminds Israel, I am the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, redeemed you from slavery. He promised things to them, he fulfilled those things to them, and he completely fulfilled them. The Lord has also made promises to us. Some he has fulfilled, some he will fulfill, uh, but he will fulfill those completely to us, and we need to have faith in him for that. Let's just pray to conclude our time together. Lord, I am so thankful for the work you did with the nation of Israel and how you saved them in such a way that they would know that you were the Lord. And I pray that we would know that you were the Lord. Lord, the way that you saved them is the way that you save us. You are the worker in their exodus. You are the worker in our salvation. It is your surety, your confirmation of our salvation that makes it even possible. And Lord, the way in which you saved them through uh, redeeming them from slavery, through bringing them out with judgment, taking them as your people, bringing them into a land and giving them that as a possession is the way that you save us. And we look so forward to the future fulfillment of those promises. We trust you for them. In your name, amen. Incredible passage in, uh, in Deuteronomy. When the people of Israel have been in the wilderness for 40 years and Moses brings them to the border of the land, they can see it. And they are in the same position we're in. The Lord has redeemed them. He's brought them out of slavery. They don't have the land yet. They're waiting. Their fulfillment of all of the things they want and desire and have been promised has not happened in the same way that we are now. And Moses says to them in Deuteronomy 7, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It's not because you are more than number than any of the other peoples that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you are the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from slavery to sin, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God the faithful, 
God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. And Moses goes on and he keeps saying, if, if you trust in the Lord, he will give you the land. It's a promise that was coming for them. It is a promise that is still coming for us and we can have faith in the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Lord, we just pray now as we go from here that we would know that we can have faith in you, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. And that you've chosen us not because we're the greatest or the largest number of people, but because you love us. We pray that we would have faith in you to keep the remainder of your promises to us in the same way that you kept them to Israel. We thank you so very much for your work of salvation and the confidence we can have that you will bring it to completion. In your name, amen.